trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's a Tuesday, and I'd like to welcome my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com back to the program. Hello, Eric. Hey, Brian. Uh, it's good to be awake in the grifter states of, of America, isn't it? The grifter states of America. <laughs> I love it. By the way, um, just wanted to do some follow-up. You did a little bit of poking around and found out that the yep. experience I had last week in which I had a hold put against my debit card by a gas station is apparently that's that's a real thing that's happening elsewhere it is and that's why i use the word grift to begin our conversation today because yeah indeed apparently uh, a number of these big gas station chains um if you use a debit card and it's interesting you know we'll get back to that in a moment a debit card will uh, in addition to uh debiting your account for whatever the purchase is will also place an additional hold on money in your account uh and what's fascinating about that is again that it's a debit card, which means that it automatically withdraws the money. So, you know, the pretense that this is somehow kind of an anti-fraud protection for them to keep people from pumping and jumping is absurd because it's not a credit card. A credit card is, you know, you get a float, uh, you know, you buy something and, you know, then 30 days elapse before you get your statement or before you pay it. And at that point, it's between you and the card issuer and it's a whole separate issue. So I was shocked, shocked, like Geraldo used to say that this happened to you. And then I looked into it and found out it's happening to a lot of people. You know, I've started looking around too, and and I'm noticing that the little sticker that says, we may place a hold against your debit card is now actually appearing on, on other stations' gas pumps as well. Now, I've only experienced it at that one pilot facility, but I don't know, man. It, it makes me not want to do business with, with those who are, are taking that approach. Well, no question. You know, I would say, I wonder how they can possibly get away with that. But then we're talking about America in 2023, and it's not the America that we grew up in anymore. Um, and I think one of the most loathsome aspects of it is, you know, you're stuck dealing with this remorseless, relentless corporate entity, and you can't even probably communicate with anybody directly. You'll try and call the phone tree, and you'll get the runaround, and nothing will happen. And they'll just instantly, you know, just arbitrarily take your money. And by the way, uh, as you told me, so your money is hung up for like a day or so, right? Right. Okay, so what happens to your money during that day? Do they get to the use of it? And if you think about it, that's probably what's happening, and that's probably what the purpose of all this is. If you think about potentially millions of people all around the country who, let's say, on a weekly basis are having $100, you have, I think, $150 hold placed on your account, that is a, adds up to a significant amount of money. And if you have the ability to leverage and use that money, even if only for 24 hours, Probably you could make a lot of money with it. Of course, you're not getting any interest payment on the money that they borrowed from you, are you? No, no. Yeah, it's it's it seems like uh, hey, thanks for floating that little micro loan to us, you know, <laughs> against your will, of course. But it just makes me wonder where does it go next? And I guess this may be the well, cautionary tale for why you don't want a digital currency. Well, I was just going to go there with that exactly. You know, when you have physical cash in your wallet, you have control over your money. Uh, and barring somebody actually sticking a gun in your ribs, uh, nobody can take your money from you. So, uh, you know, it makes it much harder for, for people who have bad intentions to do things like that. 
Whereas with uh, electronic money, they can just, you know, the keystroke away and your money is gone or it's diverted to some other thing. Right. What are you going to do about right. it? Yeah. Next to nothing. I mean, and that, that really ought to scare the pants off of people, uh, you know, given the malevolence of the government and given what we know the government is fully capable of doing. You know, remember the, the, the trucker protest, a completely peaceful protest in Canada during the, uh, the so-called pandemic. And people who merely expressed support for the thing, not even participated in this peaceful protest, had their funds frozen by the Canadian government. That's the kind of dystopian future that we're looking at if people don't wake up to this and say absolutely not. By the way, I don't know if you caught this, Eric, but uh, I, I noticed yesterday someone was announcing a lady in Canada is filing a class action lawsuit against the truckers' convoy and everyone who participated because... She says that she was damaged and harmed by honking horns. And so uh, uh, of course. Here, here's a class action suit. Anybody who wants to jump on, jump on. Um, nothing about the government that was, you know, putting her under the heel and, you know, denying her essential you know, human rights. But no, those truckers and their horns and celebrating freedom. Well, somebody's got to oh, pay. Yeah. And did you catch the news, the news blurb? Uh, I think it's in Australia. It might have been New Zealand. It was one of the two or one of the big banks there was saying that henceforth they uh, reserve the right. Uh, to close your account, cancel you, and not do business with you uh, if, in their opinion, you have done something that's quote-unquote hurtful, you know, which isn't defined at all, which means basically, you know, somebody's feelings were offended in some way. You didn't uh, hew to whatever the latest orthodoxy is with regard to gender pronouns, for instance. That sort of thing is what is going to happen if, again, this stuff is not firmly stomped into the ground. And and in the case of that uh, National Australian Bank, they actually referenced, you know, climate change. If, if a person, mm-hmm. you know, says things that are, you know, disparaging or otherwise, if they're not on, on topic, you know, for, for climate crisis, that too could, could lead to them being unbanked. Yeah, disagreement is becoming actionable. Even when disagreement is factual, you know, that's, again, you know, no matter how you, you know, feel about various issues, you ought to be concerned when the truth and facts become things that you can be punished for. Very concerned. Well, which I guess is why it's important that I tell you where I stand and who I stand with, right? Every mm-hmm. avatar on my social media and everywhere I go, everything everything I say, I preface with, I stand with, you know, whoever is, is popular, whatever the current thing is. Except that's almost like a full-time job to keep track of who you're supposed to keep, who you're supposed to stand with, isn't it? Oh, it is. And I think it's it's deliberately... Something that's that's always moving, you know, to, to keep up with our short attention spans. But your your article on this about uh, this standing business was very very timely because it, it illustrates how effective these psyops are in getting people no not just on board but full throated, you know, on board, shouting approval well, and, and thing, punishing those who don't go along. One thing we saw metastasize out into the open during the pandemic again was the use of social opprobrium to uh, not only enforce conformity, but to uh, to enforce a kind of rabid adherence to an orthodoxy. You know, everybody, it wasn't just about, oh, you put on the mask. You had to pretend that you earnestly believed it. You had to tell people, stay safe, and that we're all in this together. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that's elaborating now in other areas. And that's what we're seeing happen. And we're going to ha- see more of it probably because it's a dynamic that's taken on a life of its own. Well, it's it's always good for those of us who wish to be 
free and independent minded. You know, that uh, this is the kind of stuff you have to be on guard for. And it doesn't mean you have to be antisocial, but you ought to be able to assert your boundaries and not get dragooned into, you know, chanting in unison with the crowd. Well, you ought to be able to be an individual and have your own mind. You know, that's the final uh, sanctum sanctorum, isn't it? You know, if you're not even free to have your own thoughts, which is where this is headed, what kind of freedom do you have left? Yeah, and the the sad truth is it's uh, it's not much freedom, at least for, for those who are paying attention, which is one of the reasons why you and I have this conversation on a weekly basis to suss out, you know, where where the greater uh, threats are to our freedom and what we can do in, in response to it. Well, well, the genius thing here is that they've used the instinct that most people have to do the right thing and to be, you know, to want to be on the side of good, if you will, right? You know, most people want to do the right thing. Most people don't want to be uh, either perceived as being bad um, uh, or actually be bad. So that's been manipulated. It's been turned around against them. You can see it with regard to the pandemic, and you can see it with regard to things like Black Lives Matter and everything else that we've been talking about. They have they've weaponized people's instincts to be good to get them to serve as the tools for doing evil. Well, and hopefully there are, there are enough people slowly waking up, coming to their senses that, you know, they can, they can choose to, to take a different route or, or exercise their agency to go in a different direction than, than where everybody else is being stampeded. I hope so. I do see uh, optimistic signs of that happening, but you know, we've got a heck of a battle underway because all of the, the institutions are thoroughly under the control of the opposition, you know, these, these, uh, these weaponized leftists who are going to use every means, every tool at their disposal to enforce their orthodoxy. So you know, it comes down to whether uh, this sort of loosely aggregated, uh, contrarian, wrong-thinking individuals can stand up to this, this edifice, this sort of obsidian block uh, of corporate government power. Yeah, and I think there are various ways we can do it, you know, short of, of, you know, going and living in a cave with one set of homespun clothes. I hope so. You know, it's, it's easier said than done, though. It's difficult. You know, if you're not self-employed, if you're not self-sufficient, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, people who are listening to this are thinking about that and thinking, you know, feeling anxious about it because, you know, you're wondering, well, how am I going to pay my bills? I have a job I have to go to. How am I going to uh, get food if I don't go to the supermarket? Maybe I can't grow my own food or have my own animals. Uh, maybe I, I can't figure out a way to be self-employed. I mean, there are ways to do it, but it's definitely hard. And it's, it's a, it, if you will, a great reset in, in attitude and practice that, that we're, we're going through right now. I like that phrase, a great reset. We'll be back mm-hmm. with Eric Peters right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, I was just looking at the latest article you put up on uh, if it risks 20 million lives. Oh, my (laughs) word. How many times have we heard this? If it just saves one life, then it's totally worth it, whatever the inconvenience. Talk to me about uh, this uh, 20 million lives at risk. Well, yeah, it's an example of the, the hypocrisy of the powers that be, these, these people who always think that they know better than we do, 
And he'll often tell us that if it saves even one life, then whatever it is, we've got to we've got to accept it and pay for it. Well, people who are listening to this have probably been following the news about the massive uh, recall of defective airbags that involves 20 million GM vehicles and more than 52 million vehicles generally. And put that into some context. Uh, in the United States, in a year, something like 17 million vehicles are sold. So you're talking about a lot of cars. Uh, now, not a lot of people have been killed yet, but some have, you know, and that just gives the lie to this business about saving one life, because if it saves one life, the thing to do would be to immediately disable all of those airbags and to uh, rescind the federal mandate that requires people to assume the risk of an airbag in their car. Now, I know people are going to listen to this and say, well, 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 airbags save lives. That may be true, but they also take lives. And whose decision should that be? Uh, should you have the right to weigh the risks and make a decision for yourself? Or is it something that the federal government should decide for you? Uh, an excellent choice. And, and you know, this is not just theoretical risk either. I mean, um, you know, how many people are, in, are actually in car accidents? It's a fairly small amount compared mm-hmm. to the number of cars on the road. But... If you're counting on that airbag to keep you safe, and instead it's acting like a you know Claymore mine sitting there in your in your uh, dashboard, that's that's a totally different thing. And you know, I always think of was it Honda that had the uh, Takata airbags that uh, that had to be recalled? I didn't realize GM was Honda. A number of manufacturers. Okay, uh, you know those were Takatas. These are uh, similar problem, but, uh, the, but the supplier is in Tennessee. I think it's called ACR Automotive. But it's fundamentally the same issue. And you know what? Uh, It's actually beyond that, because even if the airbags weren't defective, they're still risky. I point out in the article, there's a reason why uh, the law requires kids to be put in a child safety seat in the second or third row, not up front. And the reason for that is uh, airbags are particularly dangerous to kids, particularly babies. So think about that a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you have this so-called safety device that's a threat to your kids, but they make the parents sit just a few inches away from them. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there, I, I'm re- recalling years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, um, here in Idaho, the, one of the reasons why they advised putting infants, you know, not in the front seat by an airbag is someone had their infant strapped into a car seat in the front seat, you know, properly, you know, connected according to how we'd been told. But when the airbag went off, um, it literally decapitated this poor infant. Yep. Now, granted, the risk of that is pretty low, but so what? You know, life is about risks. Pretty much any activity you do shy of, you know, staying in bed all day is going to entail some degree of risk. And for the most part, we're permitted to exercise our own discretion about what risks we're willing to take. You know, it's, it's kind of risky to not exercise. It's kind of risky to be overweight. Do we want the government to start getting in the business of forcing people to exercise and lose weight? You know, that's, that's the road we're headed down. What about forcing us to drive electric vehicles? Because right now they yeah. seem to have no problem whatsoever with, with uh, that particular flex. Well, yeah, they're, they're in the midst of doing that, and they may have already effectively done it. Uh, you're referencing the article about the EV juggernaut that I published the other day. And here's the thing a lot of people don't realize. You know, the, the car industry is an industry. It has to make things, and making things uh, takes time and planning and investment. So uh, what are they investing in now? They're investing in electric vehicles. It's not just the EVs that are on the market right now. Uh, they're designing and building the EVs that they anticipate putting on the market in about four years from now, because that's about how long it takes uh, to design and get a new vehicle into production. In the meanwhile, they are no longer investing, a lot of them, 
uh, in engines or cars that aren't electric. So you're going to see stagnation. You know, Volkswagen, for example, has said it's no longer going to make any new engines at all. So what you have right now is all you're going to get. And at the same time that this is occurring, the, the various federal regulations pertaining to emissions get more and more strict. So what will happen then is that the remaining engines that still meet the regulations for this model year won't meet them in two or three years, and then they'll effectively be outlawed. Wow. Yeah, I, I find, uh, you know, the the pressure that's being brought to bear, and this is true not just here, but also, you know, across the pond and in Europe, you know, no one will be making any more internal combustion engines after such and such time. It seems so well-intended, yet, uh, Eric, you have done more to point out you know, it's not it's not the panacea. This is not the answer to everything. In fact, there are some pretty serious complications that come when you decide to, to drive an electric vehicle, namely keeping well, the thing charged or getting it charged in a timely fashion. Yeah, well, it's not well-intended. You know, that's a really important point to harp on. If it were well-intended, the focus of this, first of all, it wouldn't be coercive. It would be, hey, this is a superior product. And people would look at it and go, yeah, that makes more sense. Uh, it's cheaper. It's more efficient and so on and so forth, and they wouldn't need to be prodded in the back to, uh, to buy one, right? That's the first point. The second point is that almost all of the EVs that are, that are on the market and coming onto the market are high-performance, uh, gratuitously wasteful of energy vehicles that happen to be electric, and they have an average starting price around $50,000. Now, how many people can afford to buy a $50,000 vehicle? And the answer is probably most people can't afford to buy it let alone two. You're gonna, you, know, you and your wife, are you going to be able to invest $100,000 in vehicles in a few years? Probably not. And they know that. And so the object of this is clear. The idea is that owning a car, a personal car, is going to become a privilege of the rarefied elite at the top of the pyramid, and the rest of us can hoof it. Yeah, I'm not too happy about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I got, I. I got good walking shoes, but I'm still not happy about it. You know, and to all these people who think that this is somehow necessary because the climate is changing. Okay, well, if that's true, if there's a crisis, then why in the world are we building high-performance luxury electric vehicles? Why in the world aren't we building or mandating the most basic kinds of vehicles that use the least amount of energy possible to get people from A to B rather than this business of focusing on a vehicle that gets, that gets 0 to 60 in 3.4 seconds? I've got one of those in the driveway right now. Uh, and that's fine. It's a lot of fun. But you're talking about having to use more energy and resources to be able to do that. And that kind of gives the lie to this idea that we're in a crisis, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So uh, tell me, what, what are you testing now? What's, what's the latest vehicle uh, that, that you're it, test driving? It's the electric version of Genesis. Genesis is Hyundai's luxury line. The Genesis, Genesis GV70, which is it's a mid-sized crossover SUV. And, you know, remarkably, this electrified version of it, is almost as quick, if you can believe it, as a 1966 Shelby AC Cobra 427. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. You know, and for people who don't know what that is, that was that was and still is one of the absolute quickest and fastest high-performance uh, sports cars. It was really a, a street-legal race car, just barely, uh, that was ever made. And, you know, and this is a, a luxury crossover SUV with tufted, pillowed seats, uh, you know, uh, heated seats, heated steering wheel, every convenience you can imagine. On the downside, you know, it's $70,000. And on the downside, it only has a range of 236 miles. And here's the hilarious paradox. So they tout all this performance that the thing can deliver. But if you use that performance, I guarantee you, you're not going to go even 236 miles in the thing. And then you'll be forced to stop and wait for a very long time to be able to get back on the road again. So 
if you remember that old saying about speed being just a question of money, how fast do you want to go? Nowadays, uh, speed is also a question of time. How long have you got to wait? And that's a that's a deal breaker, I think, for, for a lot of us. I, I Again, I think of my friend who, you know, had a family member with a medical condition. Everybody's trying to hurry to get to her in the hospital. Sorry, we yep. got to pull over and charge the electric car, you know, for a while. I'm I'm sure that uh, that that seemed like it took forever, you know, to get enough charge to get where they were wanting to go. Yeah, and it's not just emergencies. You know, I call electric vehicles part-time vehicles. Uh, for somebody in my situation, which is a situation that most people are in, meaning somebody who doesn't live in a city, uh, you know, and who does not have easy access to a so-called fast charger. I have to charge this thing at home. The problem with that is that the very fastest that you can charge at home is using what they call level 2, uh, 240 volt, basically like a, a, an electric stove or a dryer type outlet. And that will take you 8 to 11 hours. And i got to stop don't have you here. One of those and just use... Got to stop you here, Eric. We're up against the clock. Thanks again. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Okay. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. I don't know if you would count yourself as one of those people who's tired of politics. But you're certainly not alone if you have that uh, distaste for all things political. In fact, uh, I think there was a recent uh, poll by Pew reporting a majority of Americans are, quote, exhausted when it comes to thinking about politics. And even worse, uh, the percentage of Americans excited by politics is down to 4%. And yet, if you look at the way that much of our corporate news media reports You would think politics really is the lifeblood of everything that's going on, everything that's good in the world, everything that's that's relevant in our world. It all centers around politics. Now, don't get me wrong. Elections matter, right? They have consequences. We definitely are facing, well, there's, there's a lot that's hanging in the balance right now for the American Republic. I've seen it described as an all-hands-on-deck situation where everybody needs to chip in or the whole thing is going to fall apart. But unfortunately, it's hard to get good information. I think most people, myself included, would rather avoid the news than sit there and try to watch the news and sort through it to figure out, okay, what's worthwhile versus what isn't. In fact, there's actually a theory known as news avoidance which describes a segment of the public who, after being deluged with so much content and information, just unplugs from the news. By the way, I don't think that's a bad idea. Reuters apparently conducts an annual survey of global global news trends. They found that the percentage of American news avoiders is growing. Its 2023 report stated the percentage of Americans who are passive consumers or avoiders of the news has grown to 51%. No, they say that like it's a bad thing, right? That's, well, they're avoiding the news. They're avoiding the information that they need. But are they really? I mean, thanks to technology, even those who want to dodge the news are still going to get bits of information from story fragments that seep into their feeds. And while they may not come from reliably sourced journalism or spicy stories maybe that may or may not be true, you know, they're, they're, the information is going to come to them. I still maintain you should be choosing the information that you consume based on whether or not it actually brings value or not. 
It's really that simple. And when I say value, you know, I, I have kind of changed the criteria of, well, I just want stuff that's true and factual and, you know, hard hitting and conservative. No, you know what I really look for? I look for light. And that's kind of a hard thing to quantify. Well, how exactly are you going to find light in this news story or that news story or this, you know, opinion piece or not? And a lot of it comes down to, you know, if, you, if you're hearing very loaded language, it's probably, not, uh, it's probably not bringing you a great deal of light. It's just trying to divide. Right now, our current political media system feeds the beast of division and corruption. And so this is one of the reasons why people avoid news, because it's like, it's so sensationalized. Looking at an article there from Allison Dagnus, which talks about when politics moves from policy debates to a fight about individuals, that's when our discourse becomes this cheapened binary. Nuance takes time, she says, but sledgehammer invectives are much easier and much more effective as clickbait. Now, that's not just true about Biden and Trump. It's true about seemingly every election coming up next year is going to be a negative referendum on a single person. Will you vote against Doug Mastriano if he runs? Will you vote George Santos out of office? Will you send Joe Biden and his crime family packing? In other words, our elections have become one-dimensional unpopularity contests. Allison Dagnus says, no wonder only 4% of those polled are actually excited about elections. Only the most engrossed and outraged citizens dig into these fights and politicians cater to this subset of seething voters instead of the broader public. This is where, as the bulwarks Tim Miller writes, politics becomes fan service, where politicians just play the hits. Our political climate right now is toxic, so the greatest hits are <clears throat> chock full of emotion, and in an effort to break through the noise, these politicians continue to amplify their well-worn messages of negative partisanship, panic, and ire. That's what's seen and heard by all those Americans who are already trying to avoid the news because they find it so angry and contentious. Now, she says the answer is pretty straightforward. We all have to refuse the clickbait that's offered to us and read news to become informed rather than enraged. I think that's a fair distinction. Instead of letting bits and bytes of news and politics seep into our brains when we're not looking, maybe a sober news review will help us assess the real problems we face. But in short, Alison Dagnus says we have to resist the temptation for fire and fury and opt instead for equilibrium. We need to change the words we use to describe politics. The only way to do that is to dismiss the poll of negative emotions. I see what she's saying, but I'm still probably more on the side of turn away from your screens. Wherever possible, put the screen away. And if there's something you really need to know about, well, then by all means, go out and, you know, find the information you need to, to know about that particular subject. But learn to distinguish between what you really need to know, in other words, what affects you, and what's just, you know, trending. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the, the amount of people I have seen and heard wallowing in atrocity porn since the attack on Israel over a week ago is, is just ridiculous. And it's not to minimize, you know, the, the horrific stuff that took place on October 7th. My point is, that kind of horrific stuff takes place all the time. 
But this is where the news media is focusing its attention. This is where people are just, oh, have you seen this? Oh, have you seen that? They don't even understand that they're being manipulated. And that's the scariest part of all. It's so easy to get people manipulated, especially into kind of a war-type footing. And I'm, I'm going to be very blunt here. We're definitely headed for war. I mean, everybody wants to believe it's not the case. I want to believe that too, but the evidence would say otherwise. The conflicts are growing and, you know, make of that what you will. I'm not trying to glorify it or say it's a good thing. I'm just saying there's some things you probably ought to have squared away. And I mean, not just temporally, but physically, spiritually, emotionally. This is the next phase of the fourth turning, and it's it's not going to be very pleasant and could, in fact, get, get kind of out of control. Now, we need to be courageous enough and smart enough to move forward without, uh, you know, succumbing to the idea that, oh, well, all is lost and, you know, there's just nothing we can do. All right. Having said that, I'm going to move on here for a moment. When someone floats the excuse, well, no one ever warned us, that's a good time to remember that Ron Paul has actually been the guy sounding the alarm for a long, long time. Saw an article about uh, Hamas's victory, and you need to understand how why he's saying this was a victory, in the same sense that 9-11 was a victory for um, Osama bin Laden. He says, those who called Hamas's attack on Israel, Israel's 9-11, were more accurate than they realized. Just as the U.S. reacted to 9-11 by fulfilling Osama bin Laden's wish that the U.S. would get bogged down in no-win wars, Israel's reaction to the Hamas attack fulfills Hamas's likely goal of radicalizing more Palestinians. The result of Hamas's attack will be to strengthen the most extreme elements on both sides of the conflict. Now, given the strong support for Israel among major political parties, Ron Paul says it's not surprising that following the attacks, many politicians rushed to microphones to proclaim their support for U.S. assistance for Israel. So Biden announced the U.S. would send military aid. Congress is drafting legislation for nearly $2 billion in emergency military assistance. Even most of the growing number of representatives who oppose military aid to Ukraine will support spending whatever it takes to defend Israel. Now, spending billions more to support military action in the Middle East and Ukraine will benefit the military-industrial complex. However, it will harm most Americans by accelerating the growth of the government's over $33 billion, trillion rather, dollars of debt. As the debt increases, the Federal Reserve will push interest rates lower and monetize the debt. That will lead to increased price inflation combined with economic stagnation and high unemployment. In other words, stagflation. Ron Paul says concerns over the government's debt and the Federal Reserve's enabling of that debt with easy money and low interest rates would lead to more challenges to the dollar's world reserve currency status. An increased resentment over the U.S.'s hyper-interventionist foreign policy will also lead to the dollar's uh, changes to the dollar's reserve currency status. Now, the end of the dollar's reserve world reserve currency status means the U.S. government could no longer run an empire abroad, and an authoritarian welfare state at home. So that's actually good news. He says the question is not whether the American empire will end, but when and how. He says it should end deliberately with Congress starting the process by restoring limited constitutional government by ending all foreign aid 
and bringing our troops home. By the way, he says ending U.S. interventionist foreign policy would allow the Israelis and the Palestinians to find a way to a just and lasting peace. That's not something the war hawks want to hear. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, you will find that uh, Ron Paul commentary that I referenced in the last segment in today's show notes. Those are the show notes for October 17th, 2023, which you can find at the thebrianhydeshow.com. So all the endless posturing over leadership in Congress. I mean, it's made for some uh, political drama, right? Is Jim Jordan going to be the Speaker of the House or not? I don't know. And I do hope for a good outcome, but... It does little to change what Congress actually does. And regardless of who the leaders are going to be, we still need to understand that there's a key difference between law and legislation. So I'm going to start with a question that uh, may seem a little bit jarring to some, but I have to ask this, and that is, how seriously should we take the law? Now, the answer isn't quite as cut and dry as some would have it. Consider for a moment what your instinctive reaction is when someone utters the words, it's the law. When someone tells you, well, it's the law, that's funny. We, we had this happen just the other night. My daughter and I were working concessions at the high school football game. And uh, some gal came along, young gal, I think she's a student, um, and was, was saying, you know, to one of the boys who was working in the, in the concession stand, you can't eat in view of the public. You need to take it all the way to the back. All the way. Nope, I can still see it. She's just bossing him. You get back there all the way. I've worked here. I know what goes on. The health department will come and shut us down. And, and I don't think she said the words, but it was strongly put. It's the law. So when you hear those words, do you automatically assume? Well, if something's been sanctioned by the state as law, it must be right. And I'm duty bound to respect it. Or do you more closely examine the moral premises of the law to determine if it's something you'd be willing to consent to follow? Now, see, this is making some people uncomfortable right here. I I guarantee you there's someone squirming going, well, you know, if it's the law, we should probably just click our heels and, you know, do what it says. And you need to understand, questioning the rightness or wrongness of a given law isn't necessarily the mark of a scoff law, nor any more than, uh, you know, mindlessly obeying a law is what makes you a decent person. I guess it comes back to we're trained from the time we're very young children to obey the rules that are dictated to us. That's what we're trained to do. Or else, if we don't, we're told men with guns will either hurt us or other authority figures will shame us in front of our peers. And we accept this as good and normal. Well, you know, I need to do this or else, you know, the guys with guns are going to come and hurt me. So in this mindset, we're mainly concerned with what's legal and illegal rather than considering whether something is morally wrong or right. Because if it's legal, well, then you can't be punished for it. If it's illegal, then you can. And this kind of reflexive obedience to what we're told is <clears throat> law stems from practices that have been used to create long-term obedience in large groups of people. But not many people understand that what we call law in our day is quite different from how laws used to be understood. In other words, we don't make a distinction anymore between law and legislation. Throughout most of the history of Western civilization, laws served the purpose of establishing what was just. 
meaning that laws were most often based on customs, they were based on their effectiveness and whether the people considered them reasonable and fair. So only laws that met those criteria were able to stand the test of time. The law reflected the combined experience of many generations rather than just the whim of whoever was in power at that moment. And the key difference was that the law of the land wasn't primarily handed down by a king or by some other lawmaker. It was developed primarily at the local level through the decisions of trusted judges who knew how to apply reason. In other words, the king was not the final arbiter. If you want to see proof of this, look at Article 39 of the Magna Carta, signed back in 1215 at Sword Point, which reads, No free man shall be taken or imprisoned or dispossessed or outlawed or banished in any way or in any way destroyed, nor will we go upon him nor send upon him except by the legal judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Now, it wasn't until the early 1800s that the seeds of our current system with legislation, representatives, and police began to sprout. But modern legislation really is nothing more than the weaponized edicts of politicians. It's politicians' words on paper. So as power seekers try to work to consolidate their control, their enforcers have to become more militarized over us. Training to keep the peace instead has given way to training officers to be adversarial enough to, in order to maintain the initiative and to escalate without cause against those people who don't obey quickly enough. That's resulted in a very predictable us-versus-them mentality that pervades how legislative edicts are enforced. It's sad, too, because it means that so many things, you know, virtually everything has become a police matter. And I'm not sure, I don't want to make this sound like, well, you're just, you're, you're just bagging on the police here? No, but the, the way that police are used has, has shifted. Case in point, I mean, look, a generation or so ago, it really wasn't that uncommon for a peace officer to stop high school kids who'd been out drinking, take away their booze, and then make them go home, follow them home. And if a kid got his butt kicked by his dad right there on the front lawn while the police were standing there watching, more often than not, they'd sit there and laugh, but it didn't become a criminal matter. They weren't being derelict in their duty. They were solving problems at the lowest possible level rather than looking to bring charges for every violation they could find. And even if what you were doing was technically illegal, this is particularly true if, if your driving was, was not uh, technically legal, as long as you weren't actively harming someone or their property, officers actually had a lot of latitude to cut a break to people who were ignorant of the law. Because of this, most people tended to be more honest and respectful with the police. It was only the really determined hard cases that failed to take the hint and correct course. But today, it's just so easy to find your life destroyed over things that bothered no one, based on legislation you may not even known about or understood. So I guess the lesson here is we should think before we click our heels for legislated edicts. Okay, the enforcers might be paid to compel our obedience, but understanding the difference between right and wrong is still a better guide than simply knowing what's legal and what isn't. This is why you need to have 
a well-calibrated moral compass. This is why you need to have a conscience that is active, something you're familiar with and not just, you know, oh, who are you? (laughs) I bumped into you once in a while. But the bottom line is not every law deserves the respect that we're told you must give it. That doesn't mean you're a lawless individual. It means you're a thinking individual. All right, one final word here. I've got uh, just a couple minutes. I want to share with you an essay. This is the article of the day, and I'm not going to share the whole thing with you. It's a fairly lengthy one. It's on the complicity of compliance. This is from Robin Kerner. Love Robin's work. I have found a number of articles by Robin on the Brownstone Institute website, brownstone.org, and strongly recommend this. The beauty of this article is Robin talks about how we live in an age of agendas, and Robin does a beautiful job of, of contrasting an agenda with your agency. Agency is what it takes to be virtuous. And if, if you aren't free to choose, meaning you could go either way, agendas tell people what to do. They identify moral rightness with compliance. They also punish noncompliance. And in doing so, they deny conscience agency, and thereby the essence of morality. But agendas can't make morality. They can't be moral. Only human agency can do that. This is one of the better essays I've seen on, on agency. Robin Kerner says agency is always prior. That's where morality and responsibility live. So it's agency, not agenda, that makes moral experience and moral action possible. For that reason, it's what makes possible humanity. Without agency, we would not feel any difference between right and wrong. We would not have whatever it is we mean by conscience, because we wouldn't have the will or capacity necessary to choose whether or not to act according to its outputs. Indeed, agency can be broadly understood as willfulness aligned with the capacity to identify one course of action as better than another, to knowingly and freely choose which to perform and then to perform it. Like I say, this is a marvelous article. There's a lot of meat on that bone, so if you want to dig in, simply go to my website, thebrianhideshow.com, click on the show notes for October 17th, 2023, and check out the article of the day. I think you'll find it well worth your time. All right, thanks for putting up with my ramblings today. Please subscribe to the show notes. If you're feeling extra flush with cash, consider buying me a cup of coffee. This is The Brian Hyde Show.